Hey, all my true crimey people. I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. Welcome back to our show. We are truly so grateful and so passionate about the stories and the victims that we are advocating for. And if you're new here, I'm guessing that you're looking for true crime cases that you may have never heard of. You made it, you're in the right place, and welcome to our show, where we're a mother-daughter duo, where we casually tell stories about true crime, and we created True Crime Exposed to expose the worst people that exist among us, the terrible humans that there can be, and the biggest evil of all. But most of all, we created it to give each victim's story exposure, because we support the life of anyone who was taken from us unjustly. And by sharing these stories, we are victim advocates, and we love being that voice for all these cases, for the people that no longer get to have their voice heard. Each case we share with you holds a huge spot in our hearts. Are you ready for today's case? Today's case will be our 10th episode, so yay, congrats to us. I am so happy that we're doing this together and sharing these stories with you guys. And I think this is a great episode for our little milestone. This episode should infuriate all of you. As much as we don't want to think that it is real, corruption in police departments can be as real as it gets. No, I'm not saying that all police are bad or that all police departments have issues. We need them. I love and support them. But it's a fact that there is corruption out there. There are rotten eggs within every system, regardless of what the job is. That's the unfortunate thing about being human. Some of us should just not be trusted. This man and his family have never received justice, regardless of them fighting for it tooth and nail regardless of the medical records that are on their side, regardless of all the evidence that they have, the way they can prove everything that I tell you today, and regardless of them having many people standing behind them. Luckily for us, we got an exclusive interview with our victim's mother, because there are very few articles even written about this case. Donna Augustine's interview will help me tell you this story today, and you are in for a shock. And let me be very clear today. I have not talked with the police department in this case. I have not talked with their DA's office. I have not talked with the Office for Victims of Crime. Who I have talked to is the family, and this today is the family's story. This is their side of things. This is not the police's side. This is not the DA's side. This is not anybody's side except for the families. And I support families and I advocate for families. And that's why I'm here telling these stories. 
I am an advocate for the victims. And if the victim's family feels wrong, I feel like I need to tell their story, get their side out there. So on May 28th, 2018, Stephen Augustine, who was born July 10th, 1987, was working this night at Chops, a restaurant near his home in Kingston, New York. He didn't drive, which sounds crazy to us over here in like Idaho, where things are really spread out, but many people in New York don't drive. If they live somewhere that businesses and homes are tightly clumped together, they walk or bike everywhere. And Stephen was one of these people. He didn't mind walking to work and back. He was such a determined man who was working hard to be everything that he dreamed of. He was working as a sous chef at this time with dreams of continuing his culinary education and eventually moving up in the ranks as one of the top chefs. He worked hard mastering this craft and providing for his children. On top of all of this responsibility, he would do extra work on the side, small jobs for his boss or his co-workers or anyone that he could help. And if Stephen wasn't working, he was with his kids. Stephen had two sons, and they were his world. Last week, his youngest son, Michael Dennis Augustine Jr., turned nine years old. And this week, his oldest son, Stephen Michael Augustine Jr., will be turning 13. He had both these boys with the same mother, but unfortunately, not all relationships are meant to last. And sometime after their second son comes into their lice, the couple decides to split. Stephen's mom, Donna Augustine, told me that Stephen was heartbroken and that this is what really led him into being such a workaholic. He never moved on from that relationship. In fact, he still tried to woo her with flowers on the holidays and her birthday. But although they could co-parent together, they never rekindled the romance. And this is when he jumped into working and just immersed himself with achieving his goals. So after working hard that night of May 28th, Stephen started walking home. He always cut through this neighborhood on the way home, and although his mom worried about him walking this way, he always told her he would be okay. But on this night, Donna's worst fears came true. Stephen had gone to a store nearby their home called Stewart's, and inside was a couple. They watched him while he traded in some lottery tickets, and then they followed him outside where they robbed him. And they didn't just take Stephen's money. No, they beat him. They beat him so badly that Stephen fell to the ground and into unconsciousness. Did you say this was a couple? Yes, this was a couple. So it is a guy and his girlfriend. They would actually be later found to be Charles Miles and his girlfriend, Deidre Woods. Okay. They pray during the night. have a very bad reputation. He's a three-time felon. After beating Stephen into unconsciousness... These monsters take every single penny out of his pockets, and then they just leave. They leave him there suffering. But after fleeing the scene, Charles gets a little nervous. I mean, he saw what Stephen looked like laying there on the ground, and he must have known that his attack wasn't going to turn out to be just another robbery. The attack was brutal and vicious, and he must have known that Stephen had a chance of dying. 
So Charles actually returns to the crime scene. This time he's without Deidre. He first checks on Stephen, who's still laying there in the street. And then he runs back into Stewart's, where he first eyed Stephen. And he calls 911. And then he even waits there to meet the officers and the ambulance where Stephen is lying in front of Cake Box Bakery in Kingston, New York. So is that store not that busy? I think it's kind of like a convenience store. I mean, if they were able to beat him up, leave, then have him come back. It was midnight. Oh, midnight. Okay. Yeah. So it's like at the night. And then I think it's just kind of more like a convenience type store. So I don't think it was really busy at this time. And it was dark. Okay. So when the ambulance arrives, Stephen had been coming in and out of consciousness and was actually able to talk to the responders. He was even able to tell them his name. So he's loaded up into the ambulance at 11.07 p.m. and they take him to Kingston Hospital. Now, while all of this is going on, the police are talking to Charles. They need to question him. What happened here? Remember, he is the one that called 911. One of the officers at the scene was Officer Weinstop, who was the Ulster County Chief of Investigators and still is today. In the incident report, they note the horrendous head injury that caused two skull fractures, along with two broken bones at the base of his skull. His entire left side of his skull had been shattered. Stephen also had two bones on his face broken right around his sinuses, and his lip was nearly ripped off during the beating. When Officer Weinstop finally has a conversation with Donna Augustine to tell her about their findings in Stephen's attack, he states that there was a trusted informant at the scene of the crime, and that informant had confirmed that Charles Miles was the one to hit Stephen. And yeah, you heard that right. Hit Stephen, not beat Stephen. Oh, and Deidre, they say, was just a witness. Did neither one of them have any bruises on their hands or marks on their bodies? You would think they would have marks all over. This investigation was super sloppy. So them getting evidence off of Charles and Deidre, I don't think that they did. They basically trusted this informant about what happened and they were like all right that's what happened but who is this mystery informant that just happened to be at the crime scene well the family believes that it's charles miles himself in a video that donna augustine has and has sent me you can hear deidre woods charles girlfriend talking to a man in a car and telling him that she knows an informant for the police that he can do anything he wants and get away with it because the police will protect him. Donna was also tipped off by a few other investigators that Charles was in fact an informant for the Kingston PD. So basically what the family is saying is that, you know, Officer Weinstop did tell Donna there was a trusted informant and he said that Charles hit him. And when I say hit, I mean hit him once. The Kingston PD and the police department deny that Charles was an informant, 
but they don't outright deny it. They they do say that Charles was not an informant at the time, but it hasn't been confirmed if he was or was not an informant ever. Yes, he's a police informant. Um, the one video I sent to you, I don't know if I explained it. Um, it's Deidre Woods questioning a man in a car. And she says about Charles Miles works for the police department. Mm-hmm. And he's allowed to do and gets away with anything he wants to do in Kingston. You know, dealing and everything else. I mean, she wow. says it right on this video. Now. Donna Augustine, Stephen's mother, lived just minutes down the road from Stewart's and the bakery where Stephen was beaten and found. But the police don't go straight to her home to notify her that her son had been injured and was on the way to the hospital. No, they wait until 3.58 a.m. to come let Donna know that her son was attacked and severely injured. They actually waited until he was moved to a higher level trauma center at another hospital, Mid-Hudson Regional Hospital. And he wasn't moved until hours after his arrival at the first hospital. And all that time he was alone because his family didn't even know that anything had happened to him. Why wouldn't they tell him? I don't know, but don't you think that's super weird that he was attacked at 11, like five minutes away from her house? And then they don't inform her until 4 a.m., five hours later. Yeah, that seems odd. Yeah. So she wasn't even able to go meet them at the hospital. She didn't even know that he was at any hospital until he had already been to one hospital and then moved to another. Yeah, I would be mad. Uh, Yeah. And Donna tells me that since she wasn't aware that Stephen was even hurt, She is clueless as to what happened to her son from the time he was picked up and taken to the hospital till the time that he was moved to the other hospital. She is confused why he was talking when he was picked up and then he deteriorated so quickly. But what she does know is what condition he was in when she got him. Stephen was injured beyond recognition. Like we talked about in the incident report, he had multiple skull fractures on the backside and front of his head. The left side of his head was too damaged, so doctors had to remove a part of his skull, which left him with a condition known as sunken skull syndrome. He was left paralyzed so badly that he couldn't move at all. He couldn't even talk. The only thing he could do was move his eyes. He could only look around, and Donna tells me how he would just look at them and cry. And I'll share pictures, I know, I'll share pictures of Steven in the hospital onto our Instagram, and when you see the way his skull was sunk in, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these injuries were not from a hit or a fall to the ground. That's that's what I've just been thinking. Like, the cops had to have seen that it was a lot more than a hit. Exactly. And that's what they're claiming. even if there was a witness that said there was a hit, they shouldn't have believed the witness because they could see it with their own eyes. I literally think the witness was the perpetrator himself. (laughs) But still, they should, they should. But either way, it's like, okay, and if it was one hit, well, that person should get in trouble. Yeah, it it sounds like they could tell it was a lot more than a hit. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to send you a picture real quick, actually. Oh, my gosh. That is terrible. That is so sad. 
Yeah, can you see how his head is completely sunk in the whole left half? Yes. He has like the breathing stuff around his neck. That is so sad. They said Stephen was intoxicated that night. Um, his blood um, count came back and it came back, the doctor said, less than a half a beer because he just got off of work. Wow. Um, the head injury, he might have been a little combative. The ambulance woman I talked to said that he was speaking when they came to him and he said their name and his address. And um, then she wouldn't tell me anymore. It took them five hours before the police ever came to my house. He laid over in the Kingston Hospital, critical condition, bleeding for over five hours before they sent him to the trauma hospital over in Poughkeepsie. Wow. And the doctor from Poughkeepsie, Dr. Cho, that did the surgery, said that he didn't know. He says he, he, he saw something with the x-rays, that there was a difference between when Stephen came into the hospital and the x-rays were done, and then when he came over to the Mid-Hudson Regional Hospital, there was a difference between them, and he was wondering if something could have happened to him at the hospital or mm-hmm. in the ambulance. Wow. So I, I don't know, you know, why did they leave him there five hours before they came and got me? What I don't know what happened. I don't know who was with him. I know all the names of the police involved in it. I have all that all written down. Now, Donna thinks there is tons of corruption. And I, I honestly believe her. This is why I'm sharing this story for her, because the police have treated her and her family horribly. And as you can see from the pictures, like, She deserves to be raising questions about her son's death. Yeah, I hope we can help her. Me too. So it took two days for Donna to convince the police to come to the hospital and take evidence from Stephen's fingernails. She kept trying to tell them for days, there is blood and skin underneath my son's nails. You have to come take this evidence. And then finally, after more than 48 hours, they do. They're like, fine, we'll come take the evidence. But she would later find out that it was never processed. David Clegg was a man who worked as her lawyer at one point in her son's case, who actually would later on become the second DA in this investigation. And he was the one who told her that this evidence was never tested. In fact, it was thrown away. They didn't have it at all anymore. Just another sloppy part of the investigation, kind of like how there was no investigation of the scene of the crime. Nothing had been taped off, nothing had been collected, and the scene was hosed down and cleaned up directly after the attack. And Mr. Clegg did the investigation, and when he was doing the investigation, he told me that the things, um, the DNA that was taken from Stephen, it took me two days to get them down to the hospital to take the DNA from out Stephen's nails. Oh. I mean, they didn't even do it. And then when they did, I did come and do it, it was two days later, Mr. Clegg says that it was never processed and it was thrown away. Doctors had told Donna that these injuries were severe, that they believed Stephen was attacked with a baseball bat or a similar object. This information is in Stephen's medical records, which Donna has and that I read as well. All doctors that looked at him have agreed that he was attacked severely with something like a baseball bat. 
One doctor that would later on review Stephen's medical records for her lawyer at the time, David Clegg, would say that he believes Stephen was hit with a billy club. Billy clubs are used by police officers. And the entire family was devastated. Stephen had two other siblings, a sister, Tiffany, that was four years older than him, and his twin brother, Brian. Um, so I have a question. Why, if they were just robbing him, did they need to be, I wonder why they beat him so bad. And they have a history of robbing people, but I don't know if they were just, maybe they were on drugs. I have heard that Charles Miles and Deidre Woods have been, you know, they are known as drug users. I think they have a few felonies. I don't know their exact records, but, you know, they definitely have a history. So I don't know if they were on drugs that night and it made them angry or they just they're just evil and they felt like beating someone. Ridiculous. So the family lost Stephen that day because even though he would actually live for 23 more months, almost two more years He was no longer the Stephen Augustine that they all knew. Like I said, he couldn't even talk anymore. He couldn't move anything except his eyes. And he had suffered immensely being in this condition. He suffered from bed sores and infections, like infection after infection. And he had more than 10 surgeries. He never once in those 23 months was able to leave a hospital. He never got to come home. He would eventually go to an acute long-term care center over in New Jersey, Helen Hayes Rehabilitation Center. And I mean, it was horrible. 23 months, he suffered so bad. With that sores, he's had over 10 surgeries. Wow, that breaks he my so heart. Hard to live for his boys. Yeah, and did did they go visit him in the hospital, and did they have to see yes, him in that way? Things children never should have seen. Oh, that just hurts me so bad. So he lived for almost two years, like you said, twenty three months. Did yes. he spend all this time in the hospital or in a care center? It sounds like he probably like was he able to come home at all or no. He never was able to come home. Um, He was in multiple hospitals. I finally Mm. got him into a, um, a, a, what is that called, the acute um, care center. It's like an ICU hospital. Did he pass away from, like, an infection or did the family? Yes. Okay. But there is also some, like, craziness surrounding that. That also kind of plays into some of the justice in this case. Mm. So while Stephen's family is dealing with all the repercussions of his attack, what happened to those that attacked him? It's reported, and Donna told me that Deidre Woods, the girlfriend, had videoed the entire attack. It's also believed that she did play a part in the beating, but she had no consequences. Like, I literally mean zero. Remember, police put her down as just simply a witness. She has never faced any prosecution for being involved in this attack or robbery. And what about Charles Miles? Charles got charged with a misdemeanor, assault in the third degree, and he was sentenced to one year in jail. 365 days. But he was let out 72 days into his sentence and that's it. 
And he didn't spend any time in prison. No, he spent time in Ulster County Jail because this was in misdemeanor court. It never even went to the state or anything. This was in county court. How is that even possible? You paralyze a man, that's all you get? Literally, it is mind boggling. I was pissed when I was talking to the family. Nothing about that makes sense. No, it doesn't. And it lines up directly with what Donna's saying, that this investigation was not right and they did not have her son's best interest in mind. So did so are those two people really informants? Like the police do protect them? Well, the police don't really say. Attorneys and police decided to agree that Charles only hit Stephen once and that his fall backwards to the ground is what resulted in all these injuries. No. They completely, no. No. You work in the hospital, you know, you know, medical stuff. I don't really, but like that just doesn't make sense, right? You don't get punched once and hit the ground and have broken bones on your face, on the back of your skull, on the top of your skull, your whole skull shattered. No. Your whole skull's caved in. No. It's not even possible. They literally completely disregarded the fact that all the medical records from multiple hospitals reported that he was beaten with a baseball bat-like object. Charles was also never charged with robbery, which Stephen was clearly robbed. But the police claim that while Stephen was laying there on the ground unconscious in a vulnerable state, that this is when other people could have come and robbed him. Like, you're kidding me. Other people did not come up to him and rob him between the time that Charles fled the scene and then when he returned. Yeah, no. (laughs) So they're saying that Charles hit him, he fell, and if Stephen was robbed, it just happened to be when he was laying there because he was unconscious. And then Charles came back and he had nothing to do with the robbery. Oh, geez. He came back because he knew he probably killed the guy. Exactly. He was probably like, oh, crap. That was a super hard beating and I don't want to go to jail for murder. Yeah, that sounds like that DA did a pretty crappy job. It was just it was just like pushed right through and it was done in city court too, um, um, uh, misdemeanor court. It wasn't even done up in felony court. It was just moved right along. It was done quickly and there was nothing I could do about it. All I did was argue with Mr. Blades and Mr. Wisehop, showing them the medical records. I even showed them where it says that he was attacked with a baseball bat. I mean, I think I, it's not nothing, nothing I did with. I even told crime victims, I told Ann Provisano, the, the caseworker, I said, look at this. It says baseball bat. I said he has fractures, fractures in the front of a skull, the side of a skull, and the back of a skull, and the facial fractures. Nobody would listen. Nobody would do anything. So at the trial, Donna was able to give an impact statement, but she was not allowed to say what she wanted. She was not allowed to talk about this being a robbery. She wasn't allowed to say that they beat him. She wasn't able to talk about all the injuries he sustained. She was completely controlled in what she said. And she had to turn by the court. By the judge. Yeah. And she had to turn her impact statement in two weeks prior so that they could approve it. 
And then during the trial, Stephen had not passed away yet, but I mean, her son was gone. He was paralyzed. He couldn't speak. He was no longer himself. His kids would never have the father that they once had. And the Kingston PD, along with the DA, protected his attacker in every way possible. Like, Stephen's mom wasn't even allowed to confront him as the attacker. They treated her like she was this huge inconvenience. That is just not right. I... I would want to just get up there and (laughs) pretend like I was going to say what my impact statement said, but then just say what I wanted. (laughs) Exactly. Like, screw you guys. I will say to this a-hole whatever I want to say to him because he took my son away from me. I can't even fathom that they tried to control what she said. Let's see. So usually in court, like the different sides try to, like, the prosecuting side will try to make a plea deal. And so they must have done that and, like, pled it way down. Like assault in the third degree? Okay. why, Why would they do that much? It's so sad. And to treat a family like that after they go through something this horrific? On the closing statement of the trial down there when he pleaded guilty, you know, the victims Mm -hmm. have a right to say the statement. They made me, crime victims and the district attorney's office, made me submit my statement in writing two weeks before the court thing. And I wasn't allowed to say anything like murder or baseball bat or robbery. I wasn't allowed to say any of that kind of stuff. Otherwise, I wasn't going to be allowed to speak. And I had to put it exactly in writing what I was going to say. So they controlled what you said in your victim impact statement. It had to be approved by them before I could say it. So I did what they said and I, I read exactly the statement that I said to him. And then at the end of it, then I got in that they attacked him, they beat him with a baseball bat, and they robbed him and they left him in the parking lot with his head cracked open. I got it in the final things that should be in the court papers. Yeah. And then then the lawyer jumps up. It was no robbery. It was no baseball bat. So throughout the next year, the Kingston PD and the DA's office continued treating Stephen's family like they were overreacting to this attack. Donna kept trying to do interviews with the media, and each time she did, the police department, the DA, and the Crime Victims Assistant Program, which works directly with the DA office, would come after her. They would tell her that if she did any more media, they wouldn't help her anymore. The Crime Victims Assistant Office literally threatened to stop paying for surgeries once she did an interview and they called and canceled Stephen's life-saving surgery that was scheduled. They told her that the more media she did, the more she talked, the more she was just hurting herself. Like seriously, they're discouraging her from sharing her son's story and getting justice for him? Isn't that the opposite of what police departments and the DA should be doing? They should have been right there alongside her fighting for justice. Even if it was one punch like they tried to claim, which I don't believe for a second, he still should have faced far worse consequences than 72 days in jail. I don't care whether it takes one punch or 50 punches to beat someone so badly that they are completely disabled and ultimately die. That attacker is responsible for that death. 
because those injuries would have never occurred if Charles Miles wasn't present that night. Stephen would have never died if he wasn't targeted by Charles. I finally got crime victims that paid for it. They also are with the district attorney's office. And the district attorney and Mr. Weishaupt and the assistant district attorney, Gerard Blaze, used to threaten me through the crime victim's worker that was working on my case. Oh, And they kept telling me, if I do any more, you know, I shouldn't get the police mad at me. Why am I doing all this press? Why am I telling all these people? Everything that I should be quiet and keep my mouth shut if I, I want them to pay for Stephen and for his surgeries. I mean, they held out surgeries on me. I mean, canceled it because I did a TV appearance or if I did a newspaper article and they used to actually punish me. That is so and sketchy. Do surgeries that I used to have to end up in court fighting with them. It was You wouldn't believe what I've been through. There was also video surveillance from the store. Stewart's had surveillance inside the store and outside, and also a pizza store nearby had footage directly on the scene. And the police had this footage, but they made it very clear that they would not release it publicly, which, okay, fair. Police departments do have the right to keep things in an investigation close to the chest so that their investigation is not disturbed but they refused to show Donna, Stephen's mom. She begged and she pleaded until her and an attorney ultimately both filed claims through the Freedom of Information Act. She just wanted to know what happened to her son. There's even an interview done by a news station with the DA of Ulster County at that time, and his name is Holly Carnwright, who I told you about earlier. And the news reporter asks... So you could show her the video right now if you wanted to, right? And Holly says, yeah, if we wanted to show Donna the video, we could. So, of course, the news reporter asks a follow-up question and is like, well, then why won't you show her the video then? And Holly Conright gets mad. He starts telling the reporter that the interview is over. And he's like, do you have any last questions? Because I'm ending this interview now. And the news reporter seems a little dumbfounded and he's like, um, yeah, the question I'm asking you right now is important. Why can't Donna see the video? And Holly Carnwright doesn't answer. He just tells the reporter to leave. And when the reporter leaves, he asks, is Charles Miles an informant for you guys? Holly Carnwright says nothing. He laughs, rolls his eyes and tells them that they have to leave because this interview is over. Wow. It's like, wow, way to not be super suspicious. And then days later, Holly Carnwright resigns as DA. Did he say something he wasn't supposed to? Does he not want to be involved in the protection of this man? Could he not handle the pressure that people were catching on to what was going on and asking questions? Doesn't it seem so sketch that he is super weird about answering these questions? And then right after the interview... He resigns. Yeah, that is crazy. It's weird. Like, what is going on there? Yeah. I don't know. So after this whole interview mess about the video surveillance, the DA comes out and they're like, okay, Donna can see the video in a week. So they hand over the tapes to Mr. Hoffer, who was the reporter that did that interview. 
And he brought them to Donna's house and they played the footage. She tells me how Mr. Hoffer confirmed that the footage from the pizza shop that had a very clear view of the scene of the crime had been tampered with because you can see the footage is very clear. And then before the crime occurs and before the ambulance shows up, it all of a sudden gets super blurry. And she said, you can't see anything. You can barely tell what's going on. You can just see the responders lights showing up. And then she said about 20 minutes after the ambulance leaves, the image becomes completely clear again. Oh, yeah, that that's weird. Like, like if it was that the whole time, why didn't they just give it to her? Exactly. But they refused to give it to her. And then they're like, here's this video where you can't see anything that's going on. Like, I asked her if she could tell if there was a baseball bat used. And she's like, I literally couldn't see anything. It's completely blurry. That is so stupid. I know. And then they claim that the footage outside of Stewart's, so the cameras on the outside of Stewart's, weren't working. But she said she's talked to Stewart's, the owner, the workers, and they said that their cameras are always working. And if and that if they break, someone is immediately called out to fix them. Probably because they're in New York and probably because they might be in a dangerous area. Yeah. And Donna was able to see footage from inside the store. So that footage shows Stephen going in there and he, you can see Charles and Deidre in there and they see him and then, you know, they go out after him. But that's it. Yeah. That's. But isn't that crazy that it's all blurry and then it's like they thought if they just do it 20 minutes after, like they wouldn't keep watching. That's sad. And then 20 minutes after that, it's just clear again. And weird that they're not doing more. Yes, there was video surveillance. Um, that's if you watch the Channel 7 interview, that's what Alec Conright. Um, um, it's um, about uh-huh. uh, yep. the camera um, from King's Pizza. They said wasn't working properly. And we, um, Mr. Hoffer from Channel 7 got a copy of it from the police and he played it at my house and it was all perfect, totally clear. You could see everything. And then right, it all went all fuzzy and you couldn't see anything. Oh, wow. Like the lights from the fire truck come up and um, then the ambulance came and then it stayed fuzzy. So you couldn't see anything. And then like about 20 minutes after you let the tape keep running and it was completely clear again. You're and kidding. Wow. To the city to the experts down there. And he said that it was tampered with. So Donna and her family were actually pretty relieved that Holly Conright did resign. This was their chance to have a new start with a new DA. And their hopes were high that David Clegg would be elected. Remember, David Clegg was an attorney that had been working with Donna for over a year. In fact, he had helped her file a lawsuit with one of the hospitals for some of the neglect that resulted in Stephen having many problems through his hospital stays. David Clegg had promised Donna that if she encouraged the people that followed her Facebook page and her page Justice for Stephen to vote for him to become D.A., that he would help get Justin in Stephen's case. He told her that if he did not win, Stephen's case would never see the light of day. And it worked. When election time comes around, David is elected, and he wins by only 45 votes. 
she got one message from a follower and she sent it to me. And it said, quote, I pray for David to win and shake things up. Much needed, end quote. And David is still currently the DA today. And days before he takes office, he tells Donna that he could no longer work with her as her attorney. Of course, he couldn't be the district attorney and her attorney. In fact, he promised Donna that he would find her a new lawyer to take over her case from him. What really needed to happen was that he needed to hand over the case to an outside investigation because David Clegg is now the DA working directly with the Kingston PD. And what him and Donna had been doing was they were looking into the investigation not being done right, into the corruption of the Kingston PD. He had promised that he would hold the police department accountable. And now David Clegg obviously couldn't be a part of that anymore. He was now a part of the entire system. It was a huge conflict of interest. Well, he shouldn't have made that promise. No, but... And Donna feels super taken advantage of. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I really do think he pressured her to get her followers. I mean, she has 5,000 people on her personal page following Stephen's story and 1,600 on her Facebook page, Justice for Steve. And I mean, if he won by only 45 votes, a ton of those people could have been trying to get him in because they wanted justice for Steve and he promised them that. It was so sad because Donna was like, I just feel taken advantage of because like, I'm not very smart and these people just like tricked me and I'm like, you are smart. Don't let them think that you're not. It was just sad because they're just kind of at a loss of what to do. It's not her. Exactly. So during some of the meetings that Donna had with David Clegg while he was her attorney and after he became DA, she decided to record their conversations because she just knew in her gut that things were not going the right way. She sent these to me and you can hear him telling her how he won't be helping her get a lawyer anymore. You can hear all the promises he made to her before he became the DA that there and then when he becomes a DA, you know, he's telling her there's not really anything he can do. He won't be helping in Stevens' case anymore, but that he would assign her an investigator. Now again, this entire case should have been handed to an outside source. Donna should have had an investigator that was not involved with the Kingston PD. But that has never happened. Regardless of David Clegg telling Channel 12 News Blaze Gomez that he would have an investigator collect the evidence and then hand it over to an outside investigation. But nope, they have kept it an internal investigation this whole time. The investigator he assigned to her a year and a half ago has only met with her four times before he stopped coming over to her house. David Clegg also kept all of Stephen's case records that he had through looking into Stephen's case before he was DA. And more than a year later, Donna eventually had to send him an official notarized letter stating, quote, Dear Mr. Clegg, I am hereby requesting that you promptly return my file to me pursuant to rules of professional conduct as you are no longer representing me in this matter. End quote. Yes, he wanted me to to tell, you know, have everybody on Steve. I have um, Justice for Steve, and I have my own Facebook page. I had a little bit under 5,000 people on it and 1,600 on uh, 
my justice for Steve and he wanted me to, you know, to put a statement that Mr. If Mr. Clay doesn't get elected, that Stephen's case is never going to see the light of day. And I had to encourage everybody to vote for Mr. Clay. Oh, my gosh. And so you did that. And then he did that. That's also on the tapes. So you can hear the discussion between me and Mr. Clay because I said, well, how are you going to get my statement? And he says, well, don't worry about that. My people will pick it up off of Facebook and we'll put it into the, the press. So really, he used he used kind of your following on your son's case to push him into being elected. And then he has not done what he promised to do. Not at all. He's stalling now and he's trying to time me out. Has he done anything like at all for Stephen's case aside from reopening it? You said one year and four months ago. Yes, he's done nothing. He gave me an investigator um, with. Uh, um, but um, the investigator stopped coming over too. Really, and the investigator does. In a long time. Does the investigator work as well? Is it is it like called? Is it the Kingston Police? Is that their police force, or like what police force is working on it? Um, supposedly it's the district attorney's office. Um, Mr. Clegg, the district attorney himself, and he has an investigator, Scott the, Scott Friero, uh Oh, I can't pronounce his last name. <laughs> That's okay. But, um, and Scott, they're right out of the district attorney's office. But Mr. Sussman says that they should not be investigating the case, that it should be immediately turned over to an outside investigator and an outside district attorney because it involves wrongdoing by the Kingston Police Department as a total conflict of interest. So in 2020, COVID comes and we know it hit New York hard. Hospitals there were overwhelmed and as many hospitals across the world did, they stopped letting visitors come by. Donna told me that Stephen needed her. He had all these problems with his infections and his bed sores and she was the only one really looking out for him. She would go there often, like five times a week, she said. And when she was no longer able to go, Stephen declined really quickly. During this time, Stephen's feeding tube became infected, and this infection became so severe that it made him septic. They moved him to a larger hospital from his rehabilitation hospital, and he lived there only three days before he ultimately died in that hospital all alone on April 17, 2020. And after Stephen passed away, they actually noted on his death certificate that he died of COVID-related causes. And this was in the midst of the outbreak of COVID and all the scares that come along with it. And Donna says that her... Oh my gosh, did he get it? No, Donna says that he did not die of COVID. 100%, he died of an infection. He died of being septic. But... They noted on his certificate that it was somehow COVID related. And this has given investigators and the crime victim's office wiggle room to say that Stephen's death was not related to the beating that he suffered, even though he wouldn't have even been in the hospital in the first place if he was never beaten. Donna said she's tried to get them to change the death certificate, but she can't. 
David Clegg was helping her with that before he didn't become her lawyer anymore after he took office. And the crime victim's office had been paying for like Stephen's hospital stays and his surgeries, not because she wanted to. She said she actually a hospital social worker is the one who pressured them into doing it. But they fought her on it over and over. Remember, they called and canceled a surgery one when she did media, like yeah. media presence. And they told her that because it was COVID related, they would not pay for his funeral. Even though that's what they do, they help families of crimes pay for these things, surgeries and funerals when they are, you know, due to a crime. But. Um, can she get his medical records and see if he had a COVID test done? I think so. And I think she does have all the medical records. And she says that it had nothing to do with COVID. That's crazy. Do you guys as doctors and stuff, are you the ones who put down what happens on the death certificate? Or is that a separate party? No, it's the physician who has to put down the cause of death. Weren't hospitals at one point in the very beginning getting paid if it was COVID related? Not even, I'm not even saying it in like a conspiracy way or anything. Weren't they just a little bit getting that? Like extra funding? I don't think so. I mean, insurance companies are the ones that usually pay us, pay the bills, you know, for most people. And they they didn't check whether they died of COVID or not. Okay. Because I heard that, but I don't know. I, I just know one person here, the same thing happened to. I've heard that theory out there too. Um, but personally, like here in Utah. That didn't happen. We, yeah. You know, Shannon as a doctor would not put that on someone's certificate if that wasn't what it was. No, no, he would definitely not. Yeah. But regardless to me, I mean, whether it was COVID related, whether, you know, he did get COVID and it made the septic worse. I mean, could septic make, could him being septic and then getting COVID just like be far too much? Oh, yeah, definitely. But like to me, that is still a direct result of his beating. Like he would have never been septic. Oh, he was definitely, if he ended up getting COVID. He he would have le- had less chance of getting it if he wasn't immunocompromised and in that kind of state. Exactly. Like, he so, wouldn't have yeah. even been in the hospital. No. So the fact that they're just using that as like a, oops, oh well. It, like, pisses me off, kind of. Oh, that's, that's so wrong. It's so sad. This whole case makes me mad. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's infuriating. How's the family even dealing with it? Oh, they are heartbroken. They Just the fact that I agreed to cover this case, they have been so grateful. They have messaged me so many times saying thank you. Like, they are just desperate for people to talk about Stephen's case. They, they feel like the system is just trying to ignore them. And she said they're trying to time her out. Like, hopefully she'll just lose the interest in fighting for Steven. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, get tired, go away, give up. Exactly. 
Well, it's like really heartbreaking talking to them. When when I talked to her, I mean, I had read into the investigation. She sent me tons of stuff. And it's not like she's just saying these things. Like these aren't just theories she has. Like she has the receipts. She has a videos of Deidre saying that he's an informant. She has all the medical records. She has recordings. She like everything she said to me, she proved to me. It's crazy. That is, I, I hope she doesn't give up. Hang in there. Yes, hang in there, Donna. You've got this. Sometimes it takes years and years. Well, that, that, that also ended up into a mess. He had an infected feeding tube. And that's when the hospitals closed down for COVID. Oh. So I wasn't allowed to go. Stephen's son had to be watched very closely. He had gigantic bed sores. He had all kinds of problems that kept arising from kidney infections and mm-hmm. disinfection, lung infections and pneumonia. So it had to be monitored. I mean, I used to go to New Jersey four to five times a week. Wow. And I mean, and they stopped me from going to the hospital because of COVID. And he had the infection in his feeding tube and he was getting sicker and sicker. And it was about three and a half weeks when one of the nurses told me he was really, really, really bad. And then I made, um, they, they wouldn't send him to the hospital to get the feeding tube fixed because of COVID. They said that they didn't want to send him in there because they didn't want him to get sick and bring it back to the hospital. Oh, so my gosh. The, the feeding tube kept getting more and more and more infected. And then the nurse told me how bad he was. And then I got the big nurse on the thing and I made them bring him to the big hospital. And by that time... He had a hundred and some fever and he had that he was septic and he only lived at the big hospital for about three days. He died by himself. Oh, that breaks my heart. It kills me. If I was there watching and making sure everything was done right, he wouldn't have died. He would have lived longer. I mean, I truly believe that it was because of the COVID and I couldn't go to see him anymore. Because they were stopping you from coming to see him. him off the ventilator because, you know, for the other people, that it was horrible. And then oh. they kept stopping his operations and then he got the feeding tube and then they didn't fix it. And that's what he died of, septic. Oh, that but absolutely breaks my heart. The certificate ended up saying that he died of COVID-related symptoms. You're kidding. No. And I've been, I tried to get Mr. Clegg to help me to get that fixed, and nobody helped me with that either. So that's the way that stands right now, too. And then crime victims wouldn't pay for his funeral because it said that he died of COVID-related So after Stephen's passing, David Clegg did reopen the investigation into the case. So that's good. But it has now been more than a year and a half and there has been no movement in the case. David actually did this piece with a newspaper that Donna sent me. And he states in there that Charles Miles was not an informant for the police at the time of the assault, regardless of the suspicions raised by the family and others that were mad about the misdemeanor charge. But then he continues on to say that he doesn't know if Charles was ever an informant. Hmm. So you know for a fact that he wasn't an informant at the time of the assault, but you somehow just cannot figure out if he was ever an informant? (laughs) Like, that doesn't even make sense. If you know for a fact that he wasn't an informant at the time of the assault, I think you can figure out if he was an informant ever. So David Clegg continues talking with that newspaper and 
He's talking about how a person can't be tried for the same thing twice. And Charles was already charged with assault on Stephen. And that if it was only one hit, even if it resulted in a death, it still can't be a murder charge. It would still only be assault. Quote, the issue is and is true if there's a single punch and that single punch, for whatever reason, winds up killing a person, then that's not prosecutable as a murder. It was an assault. The question is, was he really only hit once? End quote. Which, like, is this real? So, so someone can hit someone so hard that they die, but as long as it was only one time, it's all right. You cannot be charged with murder. You get away with murder if you only hit them once. Well, even if it, you know, wasn't like premeditated murder, which it may have been because they knew they were going to rob him and stuff. Maybe they didn't know they were going to kill him, but wouldn't it be manslaughter or like? So- oh, yeah. It's definitely more than assault in the third, de- third degree, a misdemeanor. <laughs> I mean, and he wasn't hit once. It's like, he's like, was he really only hit once? No, he wasn't because he had four skull fractures, two face fractures, a shattered side of his skull, and his lip was ripped off. I think it's pretty fair to say that it was not one hit. And the medical records also confirm that it was not one hit. So David Clegg does say that they are going to take a look at the evidence, including the medical evidence this time. And honestly, I do hope that they are doing this. But it's been a year and a half now, and we haven't heard anything on the case. Donna hasn't heard anything on the case. She should call them every day. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I I mean, I think she is. They clearly treat her like she's a huge inconvenience, but... Oh, wow. She should keep bugging them. Right. So Donna feels that throughout the entire process, she has been taken advantage of and that the police department has been corrupt in their investigation. Whether they are just protecting their trusted informant or if possibly another officer was involved in the attack, she feels wronged as she should. She has been pushed away. They have tried to silence her voice. So I'm grateful to give her this platform to share her story on, to help spread Stephen's story, and to help put the pressure on the Kingston PD and the Ulster County DA's office to make this right. Her son, Stephen Augustine, was murdered that night. He died as a result of his injuries. He was taken from them in a brutal and heartless way. As of today, nothing more has been done in the case of Stephen Augustine. The case remains open, and I can only hope that David Clegg and the Kingston PD are actually taking it seriously, that they may actually try to prosecute Charles Miles for the murder or the manslaughter of Stephen Augustine. Through the investigation, when Mr. Clegg was doing it, I found out that Eric Van Allen was Deidre and Charles's handler, I guess you call them. He was oh. a police officer that worked with them for years. Oh, and he okay. He also happens to be Mr. Weishop's nephew. Mr. Weishop is the one that started the whole thing um, with Mr. Carnwright in the district attorney's office. They were the ones about I wrote about the incident. Uh-huh. Okay. So Eric Van Allen's so they're all connected. They're all connected. It's very connected in Kingston. Some of the police involved in um, 
Stephen's case and the handler, um, Eric Van Allen, um, has a very, very long record. But instead of being punished and taken off the police force, he's been promoted. He really? was caught with an underage girl at a hotel with cocaine, and he got the girl pregnant. He also got another girl underage pregnant. Um, he was in a car accident where he was intoxicated and rolled the car and he got away with it. Oh. He's involved. There's a lot of drugs with the um, with um, what's urgent. Um, uh, what's that? that that's the what's the baby? The urgent is the, the drug task force, and they're all members of it. Wow. Lots of lots of bad things have been said about it. Um, there's a site. Um, the FBI files, um, it's called Corruption in Ulster County, the FBI files, and Eric Van Allen's name and Holly Conright's name and a couple of the other police officers involved. It's all in that article about the things that have been going on for years in Ulster County, and the same people have been doing it and been, been kept getting away with it. This case was obviously not cared about in the way that it should have been. Stephen's beating led directly to his death and his family is treated like they were an annoyance to want justice for their loved one. The police force work for the public to serve and protect us. They should be advocating for Stephen's justice just as hard as Donna is. A man spent only 72 days in jail for this assault. And now that Stephen has died as a direct result of that attack, Charles remains free. In fact, Charles Miles and Deidre Woods live very close to Donna Augustine. Stephen's family still has to drive around and they see them often. Just last week, Donna's pregnant daughter-in-law, who is a nurse there in Kingston, had been to Stewart's to grab some stuff from the store. Inside, she ran into the couple. They stared her down and then they actually followed her home to Donna's house. She was so terrified that they had followed her home. She refused to get out of her car until Brian could come outside to help her inside. Before this, Tiffany, Donna's oldest daughter and Stephen's oldest sister, had ran into Deidre Woods. Deidre asks Tiffany what she's staring at and then she goes on to scream at her and tell her that she's going to bash Tiffany's head in just like she did to her brother. Stephen's two sons were with Tiffany at the time and they started bawling. They are being victimized still by the same people that murdered their son and got away with it. How can a family, victims of a horrific crime, be treated this way? We need your help in pressuring the police department for answers. We need your help to come forward if you know anything about Charles Miles and his connection to the police department. We need your help in spreading the word about Stephen's story so that he is not forgotten, so that his death can actually have justice one day. Donna has a Facebook page that you can go join and show your support today. Just search Justice for Steve. You can call the Ulster County District Attorney Office at 1-845-340-3280. Put the pressure on them to prosecute this case as they should or to hand the investigation to an outside source.
Crammies, I'm Charlie Waters. And I'm here today to give you a palate cleanser. Do you want to know what a palate, cle- palate cleanser is? A palate cleanser makes you feel happy after a sad story. My mom told me that the story she told was in New York. Did you know that oysters were so popular in New York in the 19th century that shows were used to pave a Pearl Street? Is this true? If so, that's crazy. Have you eaten an oyster before? I haven't. I'm gonna look at a picture, a picture of an oyster, and see if I want to eat it or not. I do not. <laughs> it looks disgusting. <laughs> hey, I'm Charlie Waters. I'm out of here. Have a good day. Bye. If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends. Share it on your social media and find us on social media. I actually changed our Instagram and TikTok handles. So on Twitter, it's still the same. You can find us at truecrime underscore pod. On Instagram, you can find me at truecrimexpod. So truecrime, E-X-P-O-D. And on TikTok, you can find us at truecrimeexposedpodcast, just all spelled out. We would love it if you help us continue to make this podcast by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I will literally love you forever. This is the best thing you can do for us to show that our show is great to help other people find us. Just go head over there and if you want to leave a little note with it, that would be amazing and I will be forever indebted to you. I also am going to start doing this segment where we share your stories or your questions about true crime, any craziness from our listeners. Have you been haunted? Has anything spooky happened to you? Are you close to a true crime case? Or have you had some creeper following you around before in a store? Send me the scariest things that you have been through. You can send this to our email, truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. You can remain anonymous or you can add your name so that you can get a shout out on the podcast. We will be starting that this month in September. We will also be starting a news episode every month. Just the biggest news that we've heard in the true crime world every month for that month. So again, we're starting that this month in September. This podcast is written, researched, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mama, Alicia Jenkins. My cute daughter, Charlie Waters, gives us our palate cleanser so that we can breathe a little lighter after each episode. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. An organization that you can get involved with is safehorizon.org. For over 40 years, they've been helping move victims of all crime and abuse from crisis to confidence. Safe Horizon was founded in 1978 as a pioneering pilot program in New York City's court system to support witnesses who had been intimidated or felt too threatened to testify. 
Today, they are the largest victim services organization in the country, touching the lives of more than 25 of more than 250,000 individuals every year. You can visit their website at www.safehorizon.org and you can donate there. They also have other ways that you can get involved, other ways that you can help them out. Another great place to donate would be Futures Without Violence. You can help Futures support advocates, survivors, and their families. You can donate today by going to their website, futureswithoutviolence.org. They have resources and events. They have ways that you can take action and they have information about all of their work. True Crime Exposed encourages you guys to visit both websites, to check out both organizations and to give them support.